Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and also we have Olaf Storbeck joining us from Frankfurt. This week, we'll be discussing the latest ructions at Deutsche Bank as one chief executive exits and another arrives. We'll be looking at Barclays Bank, where the chief executive, Jess Staley, has his own problems. And finally, look at the Euribor trial, which starts this week. First, though, to Deutsche Bank, which has changed its chief executive in dramatic fashion after John Cryan was ousted and replaced by Christian Seving, the bank's retail chief. Well, to discuss the events and what they mean, I'm joined by Olaf Storbeck. Olaf, tell us how these events unfolded over the weekend. It was pretty dramatic. Yes, it has been a hell of a weekend for Deutsche, actually. So on Saturday morning, we got the news that an emergency board meeting was scheduled for Sunday night. And later, Deutsche Bank admitted that the succession will be on top of the agenda. On Saturday, several committees of Deutsche Supervisory Board met and talked about different options. And in a four-hour board meeting on Sunday night, eventually decided to oust Mr. Krein and appoint Christian Weving with immediate effect. And this came after several weeks of speculation that Mr. Kryan was going to be ousted after it emerged that the chairman, Paul Achleitner, had been conducting supposedly low-key searches for a potential external successor. Was that really what led to this rather sudden process, that it was all out in the open, they didn't want to lose control of the process altogether? Yes, well, the situation escalated because the chairman, Paul Achleitner, after these reports emerged, didn't say anything in public backing Mr. Kryan and basically let the situation linger on. And this damaged Mr. Kryan's standing inside the bank and outside beyond repair and forced the bank to act probably more quickly than Mr. Achleitner initially wanted to act. I'll just bring in Laurie here, because one of the interesting turns of events is that we now have the former retail banking chief of Deutsche taking control of the whole group. It's actually quite a different scenario from what might have been imagined, given that Mr. Achleitner approached a number of senior international investment bankers as the external idea for a successor. At the same time, Garth Ritchie, who's an equities banker, has been promoted to run the whole of the investment bank. What are all these bits of news mean, Laura, for the future of Deutsche's investment bank, which, as we know, once was a real giant in the global investment banking sphere and has been rather troubled over the past few years. Well, I think anyone who's listening to your account of how things unfolded there can appreciate that this was a fairly scattergun situation. It doesn't look like they were really consistent in terms of what they actually wanted. Now, we have been here before. I mean, many of our listeners will recall when Barclays appointed their retail banking chief, Anthony Jenkins, to run their total group. 
that didn't end terribly well. I guess shareholders in Deutsche will be hoping that this ends better. But it is hard to really see a discernible strategic message from this because at the same time as having the former head of the retail bank become chief executive, they've also appointed a number of directors to the supervisory board who hail from the investment bank side. So you couldn't really look at the changes in the last few days and say there's been a clear pullback from the investment bank. Even earlier than this, the investment bank had stopped talking about hanging on to market share, had stopped talking about growing the revenue line and were more focused around profitability, around efficiency. And they were looking more to pair back than they were to defend growth. I think we'll definitely see more of that. It's something that we needed to see anyway. And we also saw in the last few days, the former co-head of the investment bank, Marcus Schenk, who was hired from Goldman Sachs, he is also stepping down. He was brought in as part of a drive to keep the advisory side alive and to keep Deutsche's dream of being a global corporate finance house alive. And I think that dream may die with his decision to leave. So I think the idea of Deutsche being a global investment bank powerhouse has probably gone. You'll probably see it do more niche and hopefully more economically viable business around serving German corporates. But I think they were probably moving in that direction anyway. I think even if one of the investment bankers, Paul Ackleitner, had been targeted, had taken the job, you would still have seen the investment bank carved into something smaller and more profitable, similar to what Andrea Orchel has tried to do at the UBS. They have basically cut their investment bank to bits, but they have made it a smaller and more profitable unit. Okay, there's lots of interesting angles to look at in this whole story. But I suppose, Olaf, one of the biggest questions remaining is what happens to Paul Achleitner, the chairman? So Mr. Achleitner's now worked with three different CEOs. Andrew Jane, he inherited, along with his sidekick, Jürgen Fitchin. Also, John Cryan and now Christian Seving. As we've said, the whole process has been pretty chaotic. Under German corporate governance rules, the chairman is responsible for a lot of the kind of strategic decisions about the bank, the appointments to the executive board. He has to take a lot of the blame for Deutsche's pretty shocking performance. It's very lacklustre share price. There's a lot of investor anger still about Mr. Achleitner himself. After six years in the job, can he stay much longer, do you think? Shareholders are royally unimpressed by Mr. Achleitner's performance. We talked to many of the biggest shareholders and all of them are really frustrated by the way Mr. Achleitner dealt with the situation. And many would rather replace him in a perfect world. But everyone we talked to also acknowledges that it's not really possible at the moment. Just from a practical point of view, leaving legal constraints aside, everyone says, well, at the moment you wouldn't want to replace the CEO and the chairman in such a precarious situation at the same time, basically turning the bank into a rudderless ship. So the chaos Achleitner has arguably created on the executive board basically saves his own job for now. And also, as difficult as it was to find an external successor for the CEO role, it's at least as difficult to come up with suitable replacements for the chairman. There are surely people around capable of doing it, but if they were fancying taking up the job, is a completely separate question because it's probably one of the toughest jobs in European banking at the moment. That's a really interesting point, Olaf. Of course, as we said earlier, Mr. Achleitner refreshed his supervisory board last week. Uh, just wondered whether you thought one of the famous names that he brought on, the former Merrill Lynch chief John Thane, was in any way a viable future chairman of that supervisory board. Probably not, as most people argue that you need to be a German speaker to be able to do this role as the contact to regulators and probably even more importantly to politicians in Berlin requires to be able to talk German. That has been quite an unfortunate situation with Andrew Jane as CEO. He had the German speaker Fitchen as his sidekick. 
but as a chairman and given the high importance of having a good relationship with the trade union to name half of the supervisory board members and are very rooted in the German-speaking part of the bank, it would be hard to imagine to have Mr. Thane as a credible chairman. Not to mention his own rather patchy reputation, Laura. I'm somewhat sceptical on the importance or on how useful it has been to them having German speakers in the chief executive's chair and in the chairman's chair because for the last three years they've had a chief executive who speaks German, they've had a chairman who speaks German and if you look at what they've managed to achieve with the union so far it hasn't been exactly groundbreaking. So I think that at some point Deutsche may have to make a choice between someone who knows banking really well and someone who knows Germany really well. And if they can't find them both, there may be a point when actually someone who can make the necessary decisions around the core banking questions becomes more important to them than someone who can handle Berlin and someone who can handle the workers' councils. So, Olaf, just to round off here, Christian Seving, the new chief executive, is a relatively unknown quantity for many international banking watchers. Although he's had a lifelong career at Deutsche, he's not really had much profile in the international wing of Deutsche Bank. What can you tell us about him and what we should expect of him? His CV is really interesting. It's rather similar to the CV of Hilmar Kopper, who was the bank's towering CEO back in the 90s. Both of them started as teenagers doing an apprenticeship at a bank at a local branch and then rose through the ranks of the internal organization without ever going to university. Mr. Zeving made large part of his career actually not in retail banking. That's where he started and that's where he basically ended before taking the CEO role. But in between, for more than 20 years, he was in risk management and internal auditing. He's very popular with regulators and also seen as a kind of down-to-earth, non-arrogant senior executive, which is a rare thing at Deutsche, actually. All we have to see is whether his appointment actually works in terms of improving profitability and the share price. Fingers crossed for investors. Thank you very much, Olaf and Laura. Well, let's move on now to Barclays and a similar but very different story. Jess Staley, chief executive at Barclays, Laura, is hardly faring well in terms of the share price, in terms of the pressure that he's under there. But there's also another big cloud hanging over him in terms of a regulatory investigation. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think Jess Staley has fared quite well, all things considered. If you think about where we were this time last year when news of Jess Staley's interference in the whistleblower situation at Barclays brought a lot of pressure on his head. There was a lot of speculation that after it basically emerged, he had taken steps to uncover the identity of a whistleblower at the bank. There was a lot of pressure about would he be able to keep his job? There is an ongoing regulatory investigation into how he handled all that. It was in this exact week last year, there was a lot of people thinking he might leave. It's now been a whole year. Nothing has happened. Barclays share price hasn't actually gone anywhere. Barclays share price is what it was a year ago, which is actually good under the circumstances. So I think he's actually pulled off a remarkable feat of survival so far. And you have to think that the longer the regulatory investigation goes on, the less chance there is that the eventual sanction is going to result in him leaving the bank. Let me bring in Caroline here, because Caroline, you spend your days worrying about regulators and what they're going to do in various jurisdictions. And this Financial Conduct Authority investigation into Jess Staley has dragged on unbelievably long, hasn't it? Because technically, they could find him not fit and proper to do the job. 12 months after he's been allowed to do the job. Yeah, I mean, I disagree that it's dragged on if you're a sort of regulatory watcher. A year is actually a really short amount of time for an investigation to be wrapped up and fully concluded. I mean, I've been looking at investigations that have been going on for years and years, and not that that's adequate, but just 
relatively speaking, a year is actually quite a short time. It's also not just the FCA. There's the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority and the New York Department of Financial Services that are looking into the matter. And if there's an attempt to coordinate all these investigatory findings, then that's another reason why there might be a bit of a delay. It's quite an odd case in a way because Jess has already apologised for trying to find out twice the identity of this purported whistleblower. And so the facts of the case are almost already certain. It's the law around the case, the regulations that were in place that I think are the grey area. The events in question took place in summer 2016, and that was just as whistleblowing rules were being grandfathered in rather than fully taking effect. And they went to whether a whistleblower can be someone outside a bank as well as inside a bank. And I understand that that's quite a pertinent matter in this particular inquiry. I mean, I guess it is possible that the FCA and the PRA could take the view that Jez is not a fit and proper person. There's been a sort of level of dishonesty that would require a ban. But the argument against that is that, well, if they really thought that, then surely they wouldn't allow him to be in position for a year. The only thing I'd say against that is that all these investigations take an incredibly long time. And we saw just recently that the FCA has only just got round to banning the former CEO of the co-op bank, Paul Flowers, four years after he was convicted for drug possession. This is a good point. Laura, let me bring you in for a final thought on this. Yeah, sorry, the only thing I would say very briefly in respect to the amount of time it has taken is, as Caroline says, the facts of this matter were clear from the outset. So it is incomparable to a case where the FCA has to go in and try to work out what actually happened. We all know what actually happened. What they're only trying to resolve now is basically how that interacts with the law at the time and then what kind of sanctions would be appropriate. But I think that is quite a different matter to when you have to actually try to work out who actually did what when and what actually went on, which obviously would take more time. Well, let's hope it gets resolved sooner rather than later, one way or another. Thank you both for those thoughts. Now, let's move on to our final item. And we wanted to curtain raise the Uribor trial, which starts this week. This is a kind of spin-off of the whole LIBOR manipulation scandal that happened many years ago now. It's been dragging on. This is a landmark trial which potentially could have implicated nearly a dozen individuals, I think, some of whom were drawn from two of the banks we've just been talking about, Deutsche and Barclays. What exactly is happening? Because it's been scaled down, hasn't it, Caroline? But it's still a pretty important event. Yeah, that's right. So this is the first Uribor rigging criminal trial that we've seen, certainly in the UK. And as you say, there were 11 defendants who were charged by the Serious Fraud Office. Unfortunately, that's been whittled down. The defendants are all still charged, but ones that were based in Germany and France, the SFO was unable to extradite because the courts in those respective countries decided that benchmark rigging wasn't a crime at the time. So they barred extradition. And then just this week, we've heard that Philippe Moisef, who was a former star trader at Barclays and one of the defendants in the trial due to start this week, he's overseas and he's refusing to come and face a jury at Southwark this week. So he'll be tried in absentia. And we understand a European arrest warrant has just been applied for by the SFO. There's a few things to say about it, not least that David Green, the outgoing director of the SFO, His tenure has very much been characterised by these LIBOR and URIBOR rigging trials. And so he's had a mixed bag of success. Tom Hayes, who was the former UBS star trader, was obviously found guilty. But then his alleged co-conspirators, the brokers, were all acquitted. And likewise, former traders at Barclays 
some were sent to prison and some were acquitted on a retrial. So that it really has been a mixed bag of results. So David Green, no doubt, will be hoping that this will be a success. We have seen Christian Bitter plead guilty already. He was an alleged conspirator with the defendants who are going on trial. And he was a trader who received multi-million euro bonuses while he was at Deutsche. OK, well, as you say, the trial starts this week at Southwark Crown Court and we'll report back on it in due course. Thank you, Caroline. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Caroline, Laura and also Olaf in Frankfurt. And also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.